Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hi, John. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Welcome to episode 204. 204. This is uh, the uh, second book, which is what accounts for the two. Yeah. The fourth chapter. Yep. Am I right? Have You're I- absolutely right. You've got it. My by Jove, he's got it. We are moving full speed ahead into the bullet catchers, which is really interesting. And you it's know, one couple- of your favorites, right? It Jeff? is. It is one of it is one of my favorites, uh, just because it has two mysteries in it. It is a, uh, as I've said, if you've read the Long Goodbye, uh, you know where a lot of the references come in in the bullet catch. A couple episodes back, speaking of the bullet catch, we had uh, Mr. Steve Cohen on, and he talked about his experience performing the bullet catch and he still has the scars to prove it it is a dangerous trick but you know it's not the only example of magicians getting killed or injured i learned that of doing research that uh, there's a bunch of dangerous tricks out there in magic well that's absolutely right and uh this week we are joined by joshua j um he's a an amazing magician in his own right but he does a lecture uh, about something he's fascinated with uh, and how can you not be called tragic magic which i think let me just aside what a brilliant yes i know <laughs> good lucky him he stumbled into that uh, it's very funny um but it's how uh, magicians have sort of made a miscalculation here or didn't pay enough attention there and they paid dearly for it sometimes with their very lives he's got some great stories uh, to tell us um but there's there's more isn't there john there is this is a uh double stuffed episode which we've only had a couple of these so far but in uh in chapter four of the bullet catch as people will hear uh in a few moments eli performs a trick which he later calls the ambitious dog which is basically just uh his take on the classic card trick uh, the Ambitious Card, which the first book was sort of based on and was at the time the only card trick I knew. And I did my own variation on it called The Ambitious Dog. And a few years after writing that chapter, I learned that uh, magician and friend of the show, David Regal, had beaten Eli to it uh, by a number of years with his own trick called The Puppy Trick. And I felt terrible about it uh, when I heard about it. And Eli felt just as bad and it His regret shows up uh, in later books. So anyway, today, after you hear chapter four, uh, and you hear Eli do that trick, we'll have a short conversation with David Regal uh, about the ambitious card in general and how the puppy trick came about. But first, let's not jump to that. Let's talk about tragic magic with Joshua J. Joshua is uh, really super well-known within the magic community. He's been a professional magician since, uh, well, probably in his teens. Uh, He's written several books on magic for magicians and for lay people alike. And um, along with Andy Gladwin, he runs Vanishing Inc., which is um, one of the, I guess, premier retailers of magic tricks and books on what they call the internet. Yes. Uh, they also run a couple conventions, including the long-running Magi Fest in Ohio that I've been to a couple times and will go to again and will someday get Jim Cunningham to go to. I really want to go. 
Uh, it is just a terrific, terrific magic convention. Uh, I love Ohio and I love Magi Fest. Um, and they also do a thing called the Sessions in London, which is a bit more exclusive. So they're, they're deep into how to do a good convention. You know, he's one of those guys in magic that we could have just picked a topic and uh, yeah. and he could have easily um, answered our questions on it because he's he's got such a wide uh, understanding and length and breadth of the topic of magic that really it wouldn't matter what we wanted to talk to him about. He could have talked to us about it. Absolutely. Um, but since he coined the term tragic magic, or at least we believe he did, um, he's a terrific guest for this portion of our book. First off, well, where did your interest come from when it comes to the stories of tragic magic? It, you know, it was sort of always there because we all have this morbid curiosity, which of course I realized was a great asset because people are really interested when I do these talks on tragic magic. But I sort of asked myself, you know, magicians are constantly faking their own dangerous demises. Did it ever happen that people actually died? And were there tricks that went wrong? And, and, you know, magic makes such a big deal out of false danger that I wondered to myself, where's the real danger in all of this? And that's, that's sort of where it all started. And I just pursued it and kept going with the research. Can we talk, Joshua, about the bullet catch? Can you, for those people that have no clue what it is, can you give us sort of its, its history and maybe its deadly spooky history? Yeah, sure. The bullet catch is often called magic's most deadly trick. A lot of people say 12 have died doing it. I mean, some of that research is sort of dubious. And, and in fact, there may be many more than 12 have died. It's just sort of unclear as you go back before the 18th century. The basic effect is that a loaded gun, usually with a marked bullet, is fired at a performer, and that performer catches the bullet, sometimes in his teeth, sometimes in his hand, sometimes against a plate. And it has gone wrong many, many times, most famously um, by Chung Ling Su, William Ellsworth Robinson, uh, who was shot in the chest and died four hours later from his wounds. There was uh, a performing husband and wife duo that would do this trick, and uh, he shot his wife, and there was rumors of foul play and that he had wanted his wife dead. There have been times that, uh, in the case of Dr. Epstein, a performer in Europe, where a ramrod tube was fired out and he was actually splintered by a wooden dowel that shot him in the chest and he was proclaimed dead. But in my research, it turned out that he showed up alive down the road uh, in a different country some months later, and it appears he may have faked his own death to get out of paying debts. It really runs the gamut, these sorts of stories, and I find them all fascinating in different ways, I suppose. Why do you think magicians are drawn to this trick? Well, I think that this idea of false danger is sort of something that I know that you know, that I know that you know, that we're doing, right? When the magician is on stage telling the audience how he could die if he doesn't escape, we know this is theatrics. We know he's going to survive, just like we know James Bond is going to walk away from the action scene. What's interesting is when there are real deaths and real danger, all of a sudden it takes on new meaning. And all of a sudden there is authenticity to this. And I think that's what has made David Blaine so effective in the modern sphere is because people know that his, I can't call them escapes, that his stunts are 
have an element of authenticity to them. He has failed at some of the things he's tried to do. Things have gone wrong. He has put his life on the line. And that's that really taps into something that audiences want to see, which is they want to see performers risk death. And it's really when you when you actually think about it, you know, I often play the alien game where it's like, okay, let's describe what the performance of magic is to an alien who's never been to Earth before. Like, okay, we're we're not doing these things, but we're pretending we can do these things. And they're these amazing things, but they're just for entertainment. If you had to describe dangerous escapes and effects to people, it's like, yeah, they're going to risk their lives needlessly by walking across this tightrope or, you know, trying to escape from a box that's on fire 500 feet above a building. Wait, why? What's the reason? And why do people like watching this? You know, it's weird. Don't you think? It is weird. Do you think, I mean, do you think that that, obviously it's been going on well before Houdini, but Houdini really kind of typifies that for uh, audiences, this idea that, uh, you know, I am risking my life, even though, as you say, uh, we, on some level, we, we know the magician isn't really because he's performing in Detroit tomorrow. So, right. but, but the, the reality of, of that may have been a little blurred for audiences in Houdini's generation. And David Blaine certainly is sort of the modern proponent of that sort of entertainment. Do you think Houdini sort of, you know, jammed that up in us? I think Houdini certainly gets a lion's share of the credit for for starting us off there. I mean, you know, he sort of created his own lane as an escape artist. And, and that's what's important to recognize. You know, some magicians know this, but the truth is Houdini in his own time was not really seen as a magician as much as he was seen as an escape artist. He was one of a kind, the first of his kind and one of a kind. And that was really important because he became the best de facto because he was the only. And then, of course, there were copycats. But yeah, it, it is a weird it is a weird trend and it's weird to understand why we like it. And I think where it comes from is, is this desire, this theatrical desire to raise stakes. You know, in magic, we're taught, and it's a very good rule generally, we're taught to make people care. How do you make people care about a card trick? Well, maybe it's a card trick race against time. Maybe it's a card trick in which if you don't successfully find the chosen card, you give the audience $100. There are different ways to raise the stakes, but the most visceral way is through danger, is to actually say, look, many of these tricks, if they don't work, no big deal. I just don't get any applause. If it doesn't work when I'm swallowing and regurgitating 20 sewing needles, what happens is I go to the hospital, I might die. And that's, that's where, you know, this gets weird. So the, the bullet catch is probably the best known of the tragic magic, but give us a couple examples that you've, that you've curated uh, as you've been studying this. Sure. Well, so, you know, it's, it's weird to use terms like one of my favorites because, you know, these people die and it's never, it's never easy to, to say that's a favorite death. But a really interesting one is Balabrega. Balabrega was a magician who first came from Sweden and he performed as the Swedish boy wonder when he was a kid. And he ultimately turned into a really great touring magician. And, and for any of your listeners, you should Google Balabrega. You'll, you'll come up with, there's just one really famous image. I have this image on a, a magic lithograph. It's very beautiful. He's a mustached fellow. And it's, it's just one of the 
most iconic posters of all time. But the very short story about Balabrega is he was performing a trick called the Moth and the Flame, which was a very popular illusion that a few different illusionists of that time performed. This is in the... I believe in turn of, a little after the turn of the century, 19 teens, 20s, I believe. And he was performing the Santa Rosa Theater in Brazil. And in this illusion, what happens is he's got a big flame about, it's like a candle prop about four feet tall. And it looks like a little candle, but it's obviously like supersized. And he has dancers, six dancers dressed in beautiful lace costumes. And one by one, they do a little dance and they jump into the flame and they disappear one by one as they jump into the flame. It's a beautiful pyrotechnic illusion. But of course, at this early time, he needed to travel with a flammable source to put into the flame. And before, you know, you had compressed air tanks and and lighter fluid, you had acetylene gas bags. And these were basically canvas bags that you could fill with a highly flammable substance and load into this prop. And that's what would give you your flame. So the story is a very short one. He was loading the prop during rehearsal on the stage at the Santa Rosa Theater in Brazil. And he was loading this canvas, this prop from a canvas acetylene gas bag. And next to him was Lou Bartlett, his assistant. And about 12 feet away was the theater manager. And he was smoking a cigarette. What? And a bit of spark from the cigarette touched the acetylene gas bag and literally blew Balabrega to bits. It also killed Lou Bartlett next to him. And 12 feet away, the theater manager was very severely injured. And Balabrega was 42 years old. Wow. So, you know, that's a, a pretty shocking story, right? And, and I, I, what I like about that story is that when you think about great deaths, you're expecting me to tell some story about somebody falling off a ledge or falling to their death or dying in a box on fire. But a lot of times the preparation of an illusion or the setup of a magic trick is more dangerous than the trick itself. And I think that that shows us that. Can I just ask a question? Have you ever uh, been tempted to or wanted to perform either the bullet catch or or some other illusion to put yourself in real danger, not theatrical danger, but real danger? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I mean, the general answer is no. I think the more I learn and research, I mean, you know, I spent about five years researching various tragic magic angles. And where I come out on that is that I recognize that I think it's a human flaw in all of us. It's the same impulse that has us watching trashy reality television of people with fractured lives and bad things happening and and we delight in their misery and so on. I think it comes from that sort of place and I just don't want my work to reflect that. But to answer your question specifically, we filmed a, a TV pilot at one point, sadly it never aired, with the bullet catch. And it was one of the scariest things I ever did in my life. I did it in LA at a theater in LA, a one-time performance only thing. We had policemen there to mark the bullets and fire. And it was, you know, I was, I was um, chained to a post and catching it in my teeth. And it's super nerve wracking, even when you're doing what all these other performers did, which is take precautions so that it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't actually have to be dangerous, but there's always that risk. And yeah. so much of the time, particularly with the bullet catch, what's scary is that you don't have all the control. You know, I do needle swallowing, which if you do it properly is a very safe trick to perform, but it's all on you, right? And I mean, I've met, I just talked to a performer not even two months ago who had to go to the emergency room because he violated the one thing you can't do when you do the needle swallowing trick. And I was like, why on earth would you do blank? And I don't want to say what it is because there is a, 
a secret to this illusion. But he just was sort of like, I don't know. I was psyched out. I was sitting there saying to myself, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And then he did that. It's like the one thing you don't want to do, but he did this. And so I do needle swallowing and that's an amount of danger that I'm willing to to accept and you take precautions and you follow safety guidelines and you're going to be okay. But with the, with the bullet catch, you know, you do have somebody pointing a loaded gun at you and um, it's just tough. <laughs> yes, it is. Is, is there anything else, any other stories that you've came across during those five years of research that uh, strike you as being sort of emblematic of what's wrong when magicians head down that path? Oh, yeah, there's so many. I mean, there are sort of funny ones in which you can gently poke fun at somebody. There are really tragic ones. I'll tell you one that would be great for your readers. And this one's actually, or your listeners, this one's kind of too dark to even cover in the talk that I give. So uh, let me give you two recommendations. If you go on YouTube and you search Joshua J. Tragic Magic, you can watch me performing my talk for a San Francisco audience in which I highlight probably eight or 10 of my favorites. And, And each of the stories are 15 or 20 minutes. So probably not great for this podcast, but I'll tell you one that's not in that story. And then I'll give you a very crazy video that you can look up if, if you dare. So there was a performer And I'm hazy on the details because I don't tell this story theatrically. I'd have to look it up. I think it was in New Jersey. But at any rate, there's a performer named Joe Boris, B-U-R-R-I-S, I I believe. And Joe Boris wanted to do an escape in the um, early 90s to recreate Houdini's Buried Alive escape. And so he got into a glass coffin and then they poured, you know, what was planned was a level of concrete over top and he would have something like eight hours to escape or something. And he had tested the illusion as he should have. But when he tested it, he tested it with topsoil. And when he did it for the press, he did it with concrete, which weighs three times what topsoil weighs. And his glass coffin collapsed. And there is chilling video online, old home footage of him going in, getting in the coffin, the concrete and the, the the soil being poured over top and you just see all of a sudden it dips about two feet down when it's collapsed and crushed him. You know, it's just so tragic and you forget that what magicians will do for press or to push the envelope sometimes ends up being so dark and, and awful and he died obviously instantly, uh, a terrible death. And that's Joe Boris and, and there's video of that should anybody yeah. wish to, to see it. Well, you know, I'm going to look it up. There'll be links in the show notes to a lot of this. Maybe not that one. Yeah. Are there any stories that make you smile that are a little lighter than that? Well, I mean, I was delighted to uncover this Dr. Epstein, this this Austrian performer um, who it turns out didn't die. I mean, I initially wrote this article, Tragic Magic, for Gibisiera, a historical magazine on conjuring. And, you know, he died and he was dead and all, all of the stuff, all this press. And then, of course, he shows up a year later performing in a different country. And, and I thought that was a very clever way to sort of dodge your debts back in the nineteenth uh, early 19th century. You know, I, I don't have any stories that make me smile because, you know, I just was at the history conference and, and a great magic scholar gave a talk on on essentially tragic magic and covered a lot of the subjects I've covered in my writings and talks. But what was so weird is like it was full of puns and bad jokes and like the tone just struck me as pretty off for for a talk about people dying. Because, yes, on the one hand, most of the magicians who have died have died from doing ridiculously stupid things. 
not checking the gun, using wax bullets, but you know, wax propelled at a fast enough charge is still enough to kill you or maim you. And so they've done these things that are, are really stupid, but it seems odd to make fun of somebody who died in the act of magic, even if it was their own human error. So I try to treat the subject with a little bit of gentleness, thinking to myself, it was still somebody's son or daughter. It was still somebody who lost somebody important. And it's hard, you know, to give a talk on something that dark. You know, when I do this talk in between all of the the people that I cover, I show cat pictures and kitten pictures as like the little running joke of like, see, it can be cute and cuddly too. And it's funny without poking fun at the people who who gave their life to magic. And we will be posting some kitten pictures in the show notes yeah, as well. Just to... that'd be that'd be great. I'm sure listeners will appreciate it. You know, Penn and Teller famously performed the bullet catch and Penn has been really outspoken in his view that it's uh, morally or ethically wrong to perform any trick which could potentially harm the magician or the participant. In fact, I think he's even gone so far as to sort of decry uh, some of the stuff that David Blaine has done. Um, where do you stand on that as a moral or ethical question when it comes to actual danger in magic? It's a good question. It's one that I would love to hear Penn talk to me about it in person, because I'm sure he, you know, he's always giving well-considered opinions and it's nuanced. I mean, it's easy to agree if you're going to put the audience or or a staff or anybody in danger. You know, I was part of a, I was an expert witness in a pretty high profile trial. I cannot talk about the specifics of the, of the settlement because that was the terms I agreed to. But what I can talk about is there was a botched escape that resulted in somebody on the team being seriously injured in a, a big escape number. And it was utterly preventable. And I spoke about that and to the court about that and and explained that with better rehearsal and better planning and a better method, frankly, this person wouldn't have endured these kinds of injuries. There's no excuse for putting your staff or your team at risk. Now, in terms of decrying David Blaine for pushing his body and and, uh, his work to the limit, I guess that, that, you know, if we're going to say that, are we also going to say you can't skydive anymore and that people shouldn't be allowed to uh, do jumps off cliffs if they're trained divers? I mean, if he wants to push himself for his craft, for his art, and he's not putting anybody else at risk, is that ethically wrong? I'm not sure. What do you guys think? It is such a sticky wicket because I understand the idea that uh, people ought to be able to do whatever it is they want to do as long as they're not going to harm anybody but themselves. But so where does it stop? I understand. I, I don't want David Blaine to stop. I saw I went we've John, you and I went and saw him when he came here and I enjoyed every second of that show. In fact, my only criticism of the show was I wish it could have been a little longer. So uh, do I and do I understand it? Sure, I understand it. And I don't want to in any way, shape or form limit people and say you can't do this. You can't do that. But I think as it, it, where we're concerned in Sunday Night Magic we do have a responsibility to, to our audience to say, this is what we have chosen to present. And if you want to do something that is outside that parameter, you can't perform. We, we just can't let you do that. We're not going to no, let you do that. That makes so. total sense. That, that, yeah. And I mean, I, you bring up a good point. And, and as I run two conventions with, with Andy Gladwin, you know, we also have some parameters that if we think somebody's going to harm themselves, because we have personal risk involved. I sort of mean that like, 
you know, David Blaine did that thrilling, I thought the best one in years, um, where he was suspended by balloons and did the, the jump. And there's certainly an element of risk to that. But the risk is entirely David's and David takes it on. And, and whether David's prepared or not to everybody's satisfaction, that's David's prerogative to take that risk. You don't get to, you're not going to sue you, John, or you, Jim, if, if his escape goes wrong, because you're not producing that show. I sort of you know, without knowing what Penn said, I guess, as I think through this, I think David does have a right to do an escape that he feels he can succeed at and, and do in that section. But of course, if David came to you and said, I want to do it on Sunday Night Magic, you guys as the producers have the right to go, I don't think so. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're in sort of an interesting, unique position, because not only are you a working magician, but you also run a company that markets and sells magic products and books, uh, you and Andy together. Have you ever run into an issue where you looked at something you were thinking of selling and went, eh, we can't, no, that's not, that's not, that's too dangerous? All the time. Yeah. We just had a really, really tough one. I, it was a great trick, just a really great trick uh, that came across our desk. And it causes like initials or something to be branded into like a receipt or a dollar bill. And, and you can hold up a piece of paper and basically it like fades into view and it looks so great. And I know we'd make a lot of money doing it, but the method involves, you know, basically palming in your hand an object that heats up a piece of wire and brands it. And, um, you know, a lot of the team was like, we got to do it. We got to do it. We'll include warnings. And I'm like, we cannot risk all we've built up and done by giving people literally an object that can brand their fingers. So yeah, we walked away, but this happens all the time. And we don't carry a lot of things that, that we think are unsafe or haven't been thought through. So what advice would you give to a magician out there listening uh, who's thinking about doing something that might be a little bit on the dangerous side? What would you tell them? Frankly, I would tell them don't. I mean, as the person who's perhaps done as much research as anybody else on this arcane topic of magic that is dangerous, I can tell you that it goes, none of the people who failed thought, yeah, I'll probably risk my life. They all thought they had it under control. They all thought that it couldn't go wrong. And I would look at more nuanced and better ways to raise the stakes. You know, I started off by saying that I think that this impulse for danger comes from raising stakes, from trying to increase the drama. It is the easiest, most crass way to raise the stakes, but it's not the only way. You can tell a really amazing, true personal story. You can position the audience to think one way and then surprise them by having it turned around and be totally different. There are other ways to raise the drama than danger. And I think it's a very good exercise to learn how to develop those theatrical muscles rather than danger. You know, that sentiment that there are other theatrical muscles that you could use rather than that was absolutely uh, echoed a couple episodes by Steve Cohen, who said, just pick something else. Just pick something else. You don't, you don't have to pick that. And the stories that, that uh, he mentioned are just, just sad. Uh, the, the things that have happened to people. That idea of picking something else or of finding a different way to raise the stakes. Uh, it was my takeaway from, from this, that there should be a way to engage an audience without risking your very life, uh, which, you know, uh, I, I would never do. I don't think I would do. I, 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 I don't think I've ever been tempted to 
uh, risk my life for an audience's enjoyment. Um, but that idea that there are different ways to simply get an audience's engagement in what yeah. you're doing, whether it's a card trick or whatever, that's, that's a great takeaway from that interview. Yeah, that's, uh, he's a smart guy, and he, he's very good at articulating that. Um, for those of you who are squeamish, I've got a link in, in, the, in the show notes that you don't want to click on. It's uh, news reports of Joe, the Joe Boris tragedy that he talked about in which he tried to recreate Houdini's buried alive uh, escape. So I wouldn't look at that. Even Houdini uh, never performed that after he attempted it once. He was like, that's a mistake. Yeah, uh, that's a good one. That's that's not that's not for me. That's going off. Let's just check that off the list. This is uh, not my locker. Yeah, we also have a link to Joshua's website and a link to his full lecture on tragic magic, uh, in which he talks in more detail about several tragic events, including the signature one, the, the bullet catch. Speaking of the bullet catch, John, isn't it about time we let people it, hear a chapter of the book? I really think they should. Last episode, we uh, we had chapter three, in which the Minneapolis mystics talked about Terry Alexander, the, the magician who has died performing the bullet catch. Um, Eli shows them a video of Terry and the fatal bullet catch, and they talk about it, it using much of the same uh, point of view as Joshua expressed, uh, that it's just a trick you shouldn't bother doing. And with that in mind, uh, we now move right into chapter four. The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter four. Now let's talk about your curfew. Very funny, I said. Uncle Harry continued. I think you're old enough now. We can move it up to 11 o'clock, but not one minute after. Do you see how I'm holding my sides here laughing? I had stopped by Harry's apartment, which is directly above the magic store and directly below my apartment, to say goodnight as I was heading out to the reunion. Now, who you going with, Buster? Is it someone I know? He was parroting the questions Aunt Alice had asked me all through high school and using the nickname he'd given me as a kid and I wasn't enjoying it any more now than I had then, but I played along. I already told you, Jake North, my old classmate, he's the one in town doing the film about Terry Alexander. Is he? Harry said absently. Do I know his parents? I think I should call his mother, just so I'm sure we're all on the same page. You know, you really should have billed yourself as a comedian. I think you missed your calling. Calling? Yes. Good point he said, jumping up to grab a pad and pen by the phone. I want you to call me when you get there, and then call me when you're leaving. Do you have a number where I can reach you? Yes, it's called my cell phone. You already use it to call me ten times a day, and I have the phone company records to prove it. So, fear not, there is no point in the evening when you won't be able to call me. Of course, whether or not I'll answer is up for debate, I added, as I started to close his apartment door. Well, have fun! Don't talk to strangers. And remember, just say no to drugs. The last word was cut off as I swung the door shut and headed down the stairs. As Jake and I pulled up to the hotel in downtown Minneapolis where the reunion was being held, I had a sudden and intense memory. This hotel had been the site of a particularly memorable past performance. The show, which was in one of the main ballrooms, was for a charity function, although I couldn't remember the specific worthy cause. All I could remember about the evening 
was that the chairwoman of the event had insisted on singing before my act. To the accompaniment of a karaoke track, she had stumbled her way through I Will Survive, but her voice made a mockery of the title. She had abandoned the song in the middle of the second verse, explaining to the crowd that she had aspirated a filbert earlier in the evening. Ever since then, that explanation had become my go-to excuse any time a show went less well than I might have liked. How was the show? All could have gone better, but I aspirated a filbert earlier in the evening. So while I correctly remembered doing a show at the hotel, I was completely surprised by the hotel's interior atrium. It rose nearly 40 stories, creating a seemingly endless expanse above the main floor lobby. From my dizzying vantage point in the lobby, I could see people scurrying along the open corridors as they moved in and out of their rooms or headed toward the elevator bank. Ah, yes, the elevator bank. I had also forgotten about the elevators, or more likely never experienced them because the main ballroom was at ground level. The elevator cars were completely transparent, and I'm not just talking about the walls. The floor and ceiling of each car was also made of some sturdy glass-like substance, allowing a perfect view of everyone in every elevator as they made their vertiginous journey up and down. Looking up into the endless atrium and also seeing the elevators had put a sizable lump in my throat and made my pulse rate increase to the point where I could actually hear my heart pounding in my ears. The plan I had constructed with Dr. Baki had been that I would go up a few floors, like to the second or third floor in the next tall building I go into, and look down over the edge at the lobby below. While doing that, I would practice the breathing tricks he had taught me. I took one more look at the sickening view above me and decided this could wait until later in the evening. Hey, dude, Jake called to me. Where are you headed? I gestured toward the ballroom entrance. Main ballroom? We're not in the main ballroom, he said. According to this, we're in something called the Sky Room. He pointed at a video monitor scrolling a continuous stream of hotel events. It took a while for it to cycle through that day's agenda, but finally the logo for our high school popped up on screen along with the location of our reunion. The Sky Room. Under that it said, 40th Floor. Up, up, and away, Jake said as he headed toward the elevators. I didn't move. I felt frozen to the spot, but after taking some healing breaths, I was able to persuade my feet to budge, and I followed him reluctantly to the bank of elevators. The doors to one elevator slid open just as we arrived, and Jake stepped in, whistling softly as he turned to press the destination button on the control panel. I willed myself to follow him in, and once inside, I immediately turned away pretending to look out at the lobby. In fact, my eyes were tightly shut, and I held on to the handrail with something resembling a death grip. I heard the doors close and felt the elevator begin to rise, moving up much faster than my stomach would have preferred. I could sense lights moving across my shuttered eyes as we ended up, while the sweat from my clenched hands convinced me I might have gripped the railing hard enough to draw blood.
Whoa, Mama, are we flying? Jake laughed heartily, the voice of a man who clearly lived on the other end of the acrophobia spectrum from me. Yes, yes, we are, I said, working hard to keep any tremor from my voice. It's quite the view, isn't it? We came to a stop as I heard the door open. I turned toward the sound, opening my eyes for the first time. Ahead of me, I saw the welcome embrace of a real floor surrounded by real walls. I started to step forward, and it all would have been fine if I'd had the good sense not to look down. But I didn't. I forgot the floor was transparent as well. My gaze fell to my feet and then to the forty floors of elevator shaft beneath me and the lobby far below. I froze, my stomach racing up to my mouth, my vision clouding and my head beginning to spin. I couldn't move, literally couldn't move. The door began to slide shut, but Jake, already out of the elevator car, stuck his hand through the rapidly closing space, grabbed my arm, and pulled me to safety. Ground control to Major Tom, he laughed. We have arrived. Our destiny lies before us. Perhaps his destiny lay before him, but it was all I could do to stumble forward and place a hand on the comforting solidity of the wall in front of me. I regained my balance, making sure I didn't turn toward the railing. Jake gestured to a directional sign with our school logo on it and moved jauntily down the corridor following the route indicated. We're down here, he called over his shoulder as he moved confidently along the hallway. My movements were considerably slower and lacked any of his confidence. With one hand lightly touching the wall to steady myself, I followed him at half his pace, making sure I didn't look to my left. The railing that overlooked the atrium was about four feet away, and I felt its pull like a magnet. A voice, a feeling, a sense deep in my head was whispering, Go to the rail. Look down. Jump. I again tried to engage in one of the breathing exercises Dr. Baki had taught me, but even as I went through the motions, I sensed I wasn't actually breathing, just pulling air in and out and never really letting any of it settle into my lungs. At this rate, I would hyperventilate myself into unconsciousness in a matter of minutes, which at the moment struck me as a pretty solid plan B. Ahead of me, I could see Jake stop at the open double doors that looked to be my salvation. If I could make it to that portal, I'd be able to put much-needed distance between myself and the frightening yet tempting rail. Once through that blessed door, it would be out of sight and therefore out of mind. I shuffled along the corridor, touching the wall as I went, more for psychological than physical support. Jake cocked his head at my progress, and so I put on a burst of speed and was able to finally get to and through the door. Jake slapped me on the back and propelled me further into the room and then took a stance next to me. A table to my right contained row after row of name tags in plastic holders. The table was being supervised by an excessively perky woman I vaguely recognized. Hi, guys, she said brightly as she pulled back her wildly floral scarf to reveal her name tag. I'm Joanne. 
I was Joanne Murray, then was Joanne Murray Hill for a hellacious four years, and now I'm back to good old Joanne Murray. Single and loving it. You're with the reunion, right? We agreed we were, and she looked at us, and then at the badges, and then did a double take looking back at Jake. You're not going to need this, she said with a flirtatious smile as she pulled his badge from the table. Everybody knows you. Then she turned to me. And you are? I paused, momentarily forgetting my name. Eli, I finally stuttered. Eli Marks. Eli Marks. Oh, yes, you're here somewhere. She scanned the row of badges until she came to mine. There you go, she said, handing it to me. And then we just need to do this. She deftly took my right hand while at the same time picking up a rubber stamp off the table. She daubed it on an ink pad and, with a practice move, applied it to the back of my hand, leaving me with an oddly shaped black smudge. That's so we can tell you from the freeloaders in the hotel who try to sneak in and graze from our buffet, she said, gesturing for Jake to submit to the same procedure. He put his hand in hers and she took her own sweet time applying the mark, even finding a moment at the conclusion of the process to stare into his eyes. You're all set, she finally said, breathlessly. Thanks, Joanne, Jake said with his million-dollar smile, and she blushed and turned away. Left to my own devices, I began the slow process of pinning my name tag to my coat while Jake softly whistled as he assessed the room. I started to step forward, but he gently stopped me with a hand to my chest. Wait, he said quietly. They will come to us. He was right, and they did, although it quickly became apparent that they were actually coming to the singular him and not to the plural us. While I was the grateful recipient of a handful of half-hearted nods, the majority of the people made a beeline toward Jake. As the crowd became larger... I felt myself disappearing, like the guy in the movie The Incredible Shrinking Man, who eventually got so small he vanished entirely. To forestall that eventuality, I wandered away from the crowd. A food buffet took up the center of the room, while cash bars were positioned in two of the room's four corners. One of the bars was right next to an open set of double doors, which led to the exterior observation deck visible through a large picture window to the left of the door. Given the steady flow of people headed that way, the deck and its amazing view turned out to be a big draw for everyone, except me. Having no desire to observe anything on or from the observation deck, I made my way to the other bar, where a skilled but bored college girl was happy to sell me a beer, and even happier, all the change she gave me went right into her tip jar. Having spent years working for tips in restaurants, I overtipped from habit, and it took me a second to realize the voice saying, Hey, thanks, was hers. No problem, I said, taking a quick swig of beer. My mouth had been desert dry since the elevator ride from hell. How's the crowd tonight? About typical for a 15-year reunion, I guess. The guys are all losing their hair and denying it. And the women have finally figured out how to apply makeup, but still can't handle walking in heels, she said with a deadpan I liked immediately. You do a lot of these? I asked. More than I'd like. What keeps bringing you back? She nodded toward the tip jar. And, of course, she added with a smile, the sparkling conversation. 
You get a lot of sparkling conversation? Do kangaroos get hiccups? She grabbed a small rag and began cleaning the top of her portable bar. You want to know the secret to reunions? Lay it on me, I said. The secret to a reunion is this. Forget it's a reunion. Everyone approaches it like they're still in high school, and when you do it that way, all the old patterns and responses come flooding back. But, she continued, leaning toward me across the bar, the truth is, if you met any one of these people for the first time today, you wouldn't give them a second thought. They have no power over you whatsoever. So why are you giving them power just because their locker was across from yours 20 years ago? Fifteen years, I corrected, but I see your point. The fact is, the counter has reset to zero, she said in a dramatic whisper. The past has no power. Today's a new day, and history can go screw itself. Well put. Now get out of here and knock him dead, tiger. Eli Marks, man of the hour. I looked up from my lonely spot at one of the many empty tables to see Roger Edison looking younger than his years and smiling ear to ear. Roger, I said, dropping a limpy carrot and wiping my hand on the tablecloth before extending it to him. He returned my gesture with a fist bump, the conclusion of which included the sound effect of an explosion, courtesy of his lips. What are you doing sitting over here all by yourself and not sucking up to our resident TV star? He gestured toward the crowd that still surrounded Jake. I rode in with him, I said, so I've already had my fill of wonderfulness. How's it going? Roger sat down and leaned back in his chair, looking out across the room. Typically pathetic. These people have no small talk in them, he said. Most of them are good for two minutes tops, and then they start checking their phones for emails. What has happened to us as a nation in our ability to chat? Well, you still have the skill, I offered. That I do, but I chat for a living, he said. Still selling insurance? It sells itself. I'm just the midwife. He stole a chip off my plate, flew it over the dollop of dip, and then thought better of it. Speaking of which, did you bring a wife tonight? Girlfriend? Or, he added with a smile, a boyfriend? None of the above. I'm currently in the box marked single. Perfect timing. It is? Absolutely. From a strictly actuarial point of view, this is the ideal reunion at which to meet a potential mate. How do you figure? Look at the stats. Fifteen years from high school graduation, most of these folks have finished an undergraduate degree, some have a graduate degree, they've moved 4.5 times, and they're on their third full-time job since college. Those who have married are getting tired of it and are ready for a change, and those who are single are getting bored with that lifestyle and are ready to settle down. Now, it's the perfect storm relationship-wise, and you're at the eye of the storm. Embrace it. I don't know, I said. I was just in a relationship. We're on hold or something. I don't know. Ambiguity is central to the human condition. The sooner you realize that, the happier you'll be. He stood up, grabbing one more of my chips as he did. All right, I'm going to keep working the room, he said, putting out his hand for a quick shake. After he'd gone, I opened my hand to find that he'd been kind enough to leave me his business card. Jake was holding court 
at a table with a ring of people seated and two or three concentric rings of people standing and watching the action. There was a burst of laughter from the group as I approached. And that's what happens when you cut in front of George Clooney in the express lane at Ralph's, Jake said, obviously providing a kicker to a longer story and inciting another round of laughter from the group. Just as the laughter subsided, Jake reached into his pocket and pulled out a deck of cards. So, who wants to see a card trick, he asked. My experience has been the fastest way to clear the room at a party is to ask, so, who wants to see a card trick? Next to, anyone else here have the flu? It's a surefire method for inducing a mass exit. However, Jake's current celebrity status was enough to keep the audience in place, so he began to go through some standard tricks he had learned for his portrayal of Terry Alexander. His performance surprised me. For someone who's been acting since high school and who currently makes what I can only guess is an envy-inducing salary on a hit TV show, Jake's skills as a performing magician were surprisingly bad. As he had demonstrated in our coffee shop meeting, he had gained the chops to physically make the cards do what he wanted without drawing undue attention to his moves. But his performance in front of an otherwise enthusiastic audience drove home for me one of the axioms Uncle Harry has been spouting for as long as I can remember. It's not about the trick or the effect. It's about the connection the performer makes with his audience. And Jake was not connecting with his audience. In fact, he was headed full speed in the opposite direction. His first trick was a simple ace production, where he made four aces appear at the top of an apparently completely shuffled deck. The woman who he chose to help him I first recognized as Roseanne Roosevelt's mother, until I realized it was, in fact, Roseanne Roosevelt herself. I had fond memories of Roseanne. We had suffered through a particularly grueling algebra class together, but that was nothing compared to what Jake was putting her through now. The charm and poise that was so natural to Jake in real life completely left him in this setting. Admittedly, he wasn't helped by the constant snap-snap of the reunion's photographer who saw before him a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Celebrity alum does a card trick. I'm not sure there was a market for such a series of photos, but that didn't seem to be slowing the photographer one iota. As Jake, ever the trooper, plowed on, I could feel the energy draining from the group even as the trick reached a conclusion that should have been startling, but in his hands was just merely perplexing. Undeterred, he forged ahead, unwisely choosing to attempt triumph, a stunning card trick in the hands of a master like Di Vernon, but a train wreck in lesser hands. And tonight, Jake was definitely steering his train into the side of a cliff, stumbling through the setup and completely missing the nuance and drama of that trick. Someone's clearly missing that magic spark tonight, a voice whispered in my ear. I nodded in agreement and then turned to see who had taken me into their confidence, and I nearly fell over when I saw who it was. While I certainly suffered through my fair share of high school crushes, the one that was the most fruitless and thus resulted in the longest-lasting heartache, was Trish Henry. She was pretty, funny, smart, popular, and at least to the high school version of me, 
completely unattainable. If we had exchanged two sentences in four years, I would be surprised. Consequently, I was amazed she was standing next to me, and even more surprised she had deigned to not only talk to me, but to actually whisper in my ear. I felt myself falling back into those high school feelings and could almost feel myself morphing into a 16-year-old version of me on the spot. And then I remembered the bartender and her words of advice. Treat these people like you're just meeting them for the first time. Wise words, I thought. Wise words. So I turned to Trish, planning to give her a casual smile and nod, and I was hit with a stark realization. If I were meeting her for the first time today, I would still be stunned into stupidity. She certainly had aged, like the rest of us, but somehow she had gotten prettier while getting older. Nice trick if you can do it. Everyone has an off night, I finally whispered in return. She smiled warmly, and I turned back to watch poor Jake who had gotten lost in the middle of the routine and lacked the skills to bluff his way out of it. In desperation, he flipped over the top card. Is this your card? He asked with forced good cheer, even though the real stunner in the trick was that all the reversed cards in the deck should have returned to their original positions. His confused participant nodded grimly, and Jake thanked her and looked around, feverishly trying to come up with a closer before his audience wandered off to find some actual entertainment. And then he spotted me. Okay, now you're in for a treat, he said, suddenly taking on the deportment of a club MC. Here's the man who taught me everything I know and then some. Put your hands together for the magical stylings of the one, the only, magical Eli Marks. He waved his arms in my direction, and everyone turned more out of curiosity than actual interest. I could see Jake's face noticeably relax as the audience shifted their attention from him to me. I wasn't sure what was expected of me, but then I heard Trish say something I never expected the girl of my dreams to utter. Eli, do a magic trick for us. Even 15 years later, the crowd instinctively fell in line with her wishes, and I heard enthusiastic utterances as someone stood up and offered me their chair. I pulled my ever-ready deck of cards from my coat pocket as I sat, not at all certain what I intended to do, and hoping my performance instincts would kick in. Like, right now. Searching for an inspiration, I looked up and saw Trish smiling down at me. Trish? What was the name of that dog your family had when we were in high school, I asked, looking up at her. I could tell she was surprised I even knew she had a dog, and it took her a moment to pull the name. As she worked on it, I gestured toward the chair next to me. The current occupant bounded to his feet as Trish stepped forward and sat. Sam, she said, or Samuel J. Smithereens, which was the full name I gave him. Sam was a great dog, I lied, knowing nothing about the dog, but glad that my gambit had paid off. I opened the blue bicycle deck and pulled out the cards. And I think dogs and cards have a lot in common. They both travel in packs, they do tricks, and sometimes we pick a card or a dog 
and sometimes they pick us. While saying this, I gave the cards a quick Hindu shuffle. I then spread the cards face up and held them in front of Trish. So, like a dog, do we pick a card or do they pick us? Let's examine that idea, Trish. Pick a card, any card at all. She ran a finger across the card spread, finally landing on the Jack of Hearts. Is that your pick? I asked. She nodded and pulled the card from the deck. That's interesting, I said, squaring the remaining cards, because out of an entire deck of blue back cards, you picked the only card with a red back. I gestured to the blue back deck in my hands while Trish turned her card over. It indeed had a red back. This produced the intended aha from the group. I set the cards on their box as I took the card from Trish and held it up. Now, that's a good trick for a card to do, and that might be all the tricks this particular card knows. Unless, I said, setting the card face down on the table in front of her, it knows how to change back to blue. Cover the card with your hand, I instructed, and Trish did what she was told, the corners of her mouth turning up in a smile of wonder, and tell it to change back. She hesitated a second before saying it. Change back. Take your hand away. She did, and I could tell she was disappointed the card's back remained red. Perhaps it would help if you named your card. Can you give it a name? I could tell I put her on the spot. She was having trouble coming up with anything. It's a cliche, I said, trying to help her out, but how about Jack? She nodded in appreciation. I gestured toward the card, and once again, she covered it with her hand. Okay, Jack, she said hopefully. Change. She waited a beat and took her hand away. Again, instantly disappointed, the card back steadfastly remained red. Not to despair, I said. Changing from blue to red might be the only trick Jack knows, and he can't change back. Or, I added, picking up the face-up deck, it's possible Jack is, in fact, the leader of the pack. And if that's the case, it would be simpler for the whole pack to change. With that, I turned the deck over and spread the cards, revealing the once blue-back deck had magically changed to red. This produced the odd reaction I anticipated, but I didn't stop or even slow down. I rode that momentum. Let's see what other tricks Jack might know, I said, instructing Trish to bury the card deep in the deck. I shuffled and cut the cards and continued the routine with Trish's card continuing to perform like a dog jumping up to the top of the deck, coming when it was called, and finally, rolling over. This last bit closed out the routine. As I fanned the cards for her, revealing that only one card in the entire deck had rolled over and was face down. The Jack of Hearts. Trish started the applause, and everyone, even Jake, joined in. But for me, the best part of the crowd's reaction was Trish's smile and her subsequent request, asking shyly if she could keep the card. I gladly handed her the jack of hearts, and her smile seemed almost demure as she took it from me. I looked at that smile and wondered how things, like my whole life, might have been different if she had smiled at me like that 15 years before. 
And later on, I would look back at this night and wonder how things might have also ended up quite differently if Jake hadn't, at least figuratively, aspirated a filbert. So anyway, we got to see Eli perform uh, his ambitious dog routine, connecting uh, for the first time with Trish, who he hasn't seen in a long time. If anyone wants to play a game uh, while reading uh, the book Bullet Catch, all the characters' last names are taken from uh, high schools and junior highs in the Minneapolis St. Paul area, from uh, Trish Henry to Roger Edison to Jake North. Yeah, those all came from junior highs and senior highs. Anyway, as I mentioned earlier, a few years after writing this, I learned that David Regal uh, has a similar trick, which he calls the puppy trick. Now, uh, here's the deal. (coughs) That, I'm sure, happens all the time. You didn't intend to, nor did you in any way, shape, or form uh, steal this. It just, you you arrived at this in the same way that David Regal arrived at it, and we're going to hear him talk about that. And his uh, description of how he got there and the difference it made to this, what is a classic in magic, the ambitious card, is, um, in his opinion, profound. What is the ambitious card routine? Uh, the ambitious card routine, it's simply a card trick where one thing happens repeatedly. What is the one thing that happens? A playing card that's generally been signed by the uh, spectator is inserted into the middle of the deck and yet it rises to the very top of the deck. And that is repeated and you can escalate the sense of impossibility in different ways, but that's the basic idea. And it's a staple of magic. It's generally in every card magician's repertoire. And my version of it, uh, I put in a wrinkle. And uh, the reason I did that is, well, for, for one, one thing, for reasons of ego, I like trying to insert something into a classic effect. So when I do it, it's a little bit different than when someone else does it. And I think that comes from a place of ego, not necessarily a place of beauty. <laughs> but when I explain this effect to magicians, how I do my version of it, I tell them the secret, the mechanics, the secret mechanics, the slights or anything else that's used to make the magic happen. But then I tell them the secret isn't the secret because what I did for my version was one thing, a very minor thing, not not a terribly imaginative thing. But I said, well, maybe I can make this seem a little different if instead of having the spectator sign their card, what if they drew a picture of a dog and they call to their puppy. And so that's the only change I made. And why do I like teaching this to magicians? Because magicians are uh, very often performing things exactly the same way as other magicians. And in the books I write, I talk about very simple ways, you know, nuts and bolts approaches we can take to making things a little bit different when we do our magic, which I think is important. You know, we all have our soapboxes. And for me, I get upset with magic because it's so secret-centric. Look, magic has a lot of secrets. We all want the best secret. The best ones for this venue, this arena, this day, this application. What is the best secret we can use? Whether it's a slight, whether it's a gimmick, whether it's some form of subterfuge we've cobbled together. What is the most elegant way we can employ a secret? But because we prize secrets so highly, 
we tend to think we're done once we've obtained the secret. But no, we're not really done. The secret truly is something we, we do need that allows us to continue. And the comparison I make is a singer. A singer doesn't go to the music store, pay for the sheet music and say, I'm done. No, no, you're not done. You have a vital component. <laughs> you have the, the notes, <laughs> the order they go in, uh, you know, the harmonics, the chord progressions. You have all that. And now it allows you to continue. And so in magic, unfortunately, we tend to prize the secret so highly, we might forget every other performing art is something people go to see because they want to appreciate the interpretation. No one says, honey, put on your best dress. We're going to see the singer that's like every other singer. No one says, I can't wait to go to the stadium to see the team that's like every other team. No, we go to these things and are excited by these things to see what these human beings who are unique human beings have done with you know, the subject matter. So in my books, I talk about simple things. In the puppy trick, I did the, the I did one word worth of, worth of work. And I love teaching magicians this, that it can be sitting down and writing a script if that's what you do, if that's what you want to do, if that's what you're good at. But in the case of the puppy trick, it was one word and everything changed. And uh, yes, I do think uh, it made a big improvement for me because in my act, I could see the improvements uh, and I lucked into them. In other words, I changed one word. My effort was one word. Let's try puppy. And what did that one word do? And I can't really take credit for it because I was realizing equity. I didn't know that word possessed. What equity did I realize? Well, let's start at the Magic Castle. I've been there, you know, since the early 90s. And you'd hear people talk in the lobby. And over all those years, thousands of magicians performing the ambitious card the standard way, not once did I ever hear someone in the lobby go, did you see him do the trick where the card that was in the middle came to the top? I didn't, I didn't hear that once. But know what I started to hear? Oh, did you see the puppy trick? Oh, don't tell me about the puppy because they would call it the puppy trick and they would talk about it. Are you going in? Oh, you're going to see the puppy trick. And because I'm not an idiot, I know, well, that's better <laughs> than not, <laughs> no one talking about it at all, ever. So I went, okay, that's better. And I'm performing this routine. It's a big, fat routine. It takes like, I don't know, I'm going to say six minutes or more. I mean, it's a big routine because first she draws a puppy and she calls to her puppy and the puppy follows her. And then he tries to do it. It doesn't work for him because it's her puppy. He has to draw a puppy. Now it starts working for him and because he's got the puppy and he's got the puppy. And then they put a leash around the deck. And, oh, my goodness. It just goes on and on. What else happened? Well, it stopped being about the magician. The ambitious card is about the magician. Look what I can do. The card goes in there and I made it come to the top. Look, I can do it again. It came to the top again. I can do that 25 more times. And all, every time it's about the magician. Well, puppy trick isn't about the magician. It turned out to be about her puppy that listens to her and his puppy. Oh, her puppy won't listen to him. Oh, you need your own puppy. Now he has a puppy. Now that's extraordinarily different. It's a different experience in front of this audience. And I, as they know I'm a magician, they didn't forget, but it's suddenly not about me at all. What else changed? Well, I can tell you the size of the stage on which the ambitious card is performed. It's two and a half inches by three and a half inches. That's the size of a deck of cards. Look, it came to the top, Boop. Look, it came to the top, Boop. Look, it came to the top again, Boop. 
What's the size of the stage of the puppy trick? Well, it starts at the back of her head, way over here. It goes over me to the back of his head. And that's the size of the puppy trick. So all these astonishing <laughs> benefits that happen with one word. So just making one choice and not a difficult choice and not even an original choice. After I started doing this puppy trick at Magic Castle for years, a friend of mine, Tony Picasso, called me down to the library at the Magic Castle. He found this book from another country. It said, after you know describing some trick, if desired, you can call to the card as if it is a family pet, such as a dog or goat. Who has a goat as a pet? But that's what it said in the, in the book. So my calling a puppy turns out was not even an original idea. It was in an old book. But how interesting that by minimal effort, one word, so much, so much changed. And I take very little credit for the changes, but the changes that occurred were monumental. And that, of course, is a huge part of performing magic. So much of magic, and this, you know, I've worked with, you know, people in television, sometimes on magic things. This no one seems to realize. They think everything, no, you go to the store and you buy the trick. You go to the store and you buy the trick. No, no, no. Magic is context. Mm -hmm. Generally magic, uh, good magic, routines and performances come from a place of context. Uh, not only a place of context, but it's a huge part of what makes you know a performance of, of magic. It's awesome. First, I don't feel so bad now that, no. that, Eli, that Eli stole or came up with the same idea. He calls it the ambitious dog routine. But it's nice to know that even before you- It could be a goat, as we now know. It could, could be a goat, yes. It's not only have, those two things, dog or goat, everything else. Doesn't have work. you tried goat? That was I, my no, question. Have, have you tried goat? I have at a Indian restaurant. <laughs> but that's it. I'm out. I'm out of the contest. I don't know why I would- what, One last question then about that though. Why, you said that just about every magician has the ambitious card routine in his or her act. Why is there such- unconscious resistance to not being the singer just like that other singer and not being the team just like that other team. Why do magicians continually have to ask each other before they go on stage, what are you doing tonight? Right, which is, is relevant because I've seen shows where everyone's doing the cups and balls and it does start to seem like it's all the same effect, but you know, plot is rarer than method. That's why, you know, I, I'd gone to Vegas in the, in the days and watched 90 minutes of you know, a very highly regarded you know, stage magician, and you realize, oh, he's levitated someone four times in the same 90 minutes. People must think there's you know, six tricks in magic. So yeah, plot, it, it's difficult. That's why it's difficult. Uh, it's easier to just do things exactly the way they've been done before. When I say difficult, I, I chose the wrong word, but it does take uh, two things, the desire to take that next step and the judgment to realize you're doing something that hasn't been personalized by yourself. As a performer, when you come to those portions of magic where you depart from the standard, you're not doing something that's uh, unique to yourself. That's just a warm feeling you get. It's just, it's not a feeling of uh, superiority or uh, what's the word, Bradicio? bragging a lot, Bradicio? Uh, Braggadocious. Yeah. There, there you go. You'll, you'll edit that part out where I can't remember words. 
in, I've been married to the same woman for like 35 years. We forget the same words at the same time. What is the oh, point yeah. of that? <laughs> if I can remember the word, I'll look at her and she'll remember every word in the English language but that one. It's like, what is going on? This is not being compatible this way isn't helping anyone. Um, so anyhow, when you get to those moments, not only do you appreciate it as a, as a performer, but I feel very strongly that it's communicated to an audience. An audience knows that. And so when you say why a lot of performers just do it the same way, I think that's going away. In my lifetime, I've seen many changes in magic. And I think that's going away. Why? Because audiences are going to start uh, to become better educated and expect an interpretation when they see magic. They're going to be, have greater discernment. And instead of just seeing anything that fools them, uh, they're going to really want to see things that are unique and different and injected with the you know, persona of the person who is uh, in front of them. And I think it's all going to happen at the same time, slowly, uh, slow motion. It doesn't have to first happen with performers and then with the audience. No, I think the audience is going to expect it more, which will push performers more. David Blaine and David Copperfield. You might prefer David Copperfield. You might prefer David Blaine. But you're not confusing the two of them because their interpretation of magic is unique to themselves. So it is there. And I think the more audiences appreciate it, the more uh, performers up and down the food chain will be delivering it. And it's not that one necessarily happens first. I think it's all sort of happening together. Yeah, I just I just love his description there about how he'd hear people uh, uh, at the Magic Castle saying, did you see the puppy trick? Did you see the puppy trick? And no one had ever said, did you see the ambitious card routine? Did you see the ambitious card routine? But you know what? As I think about this entire episode, 204, David Regal sort of drives home the point that Joshua might take away from Joshua Jay's interview, which was there are other ways to uh, to make something uh, important to an audience. And and here David Regal said, yeah, I, I changed it to the word puppy. And uh, suddenly uh, this trick becomes a thing uh, that people are talking about. And all I did was change the word the puppy. And, and it is. And just in now, just to close the loop for you, great that he found it in a book going yes. way, way back so that even he now says, well, I didn't really, other people were, if there was a goat in the family, I would have yeah. used a goat. Uh, so it, it, there's nothing new under the sun. There really is not. Uh, and I may, I may just change mine to goat as well, just to, to skip back that way. If anyone is interested, and why wouldn't you be, uh, if you go to our show notes or listen to this on YouTube or go to our YouTube channel, we've got a link to uh, an old video of David Regal performing the puppy trick uh, for what I believe was an LNL uh, video uh, on uh, the ambitious card. And you get to see him, uh, how he does the, the trick and the interaction he has with the LNL audience. Uh, for any magicians out there, we all know the LNL audience. We all have our favorite members of the LNL audience. Someday, I think I want to do a, a one of Eli Mark's mysteries where the, the audience uh, in an LNL-like situation are all being killed off one by one, and they don't realize it until late in the game that, oh my God, all these people. Um, we, also, we also could do an entire episode of uh, uh, of our show, Where Are They Now? The LNL audience. Where are they now? <laughs> anyway, uh, that was a little inside baseball for some of you magicians. Sorry about that. We don't That's need to get that here. Uh, 
anyway, next episode, uh, we're going to start kicking off a series of interviews all under what we're calling the very general heading of building a better magician. Uh, since Eli spends much of the book at trying to make his friend Jake into a good magician, we thought it would be fun to talk to a bunch of magicians about how you build a better magician. And did we find some great people to chat with about that? Uh, Harrison Greenbaum, who I cackled, is the only word I can think of throughout yeah. the entire interview. So funny, but so insightful. Uh, Ryan Kane, really bright, uh, talks about originality and magic and how to get rid of some of those stock lines. Uh, we got Kayla Drescher uh, talking about dealing with cultural shifts and how that can have an impact on performance. We, we've got uh, Tyler Erickson, who is uh, a legend in the magic community as a teacher and a mentor. Yeah, he, uh, he taught me. I've used him uh, on a couple of different projects um, uh, for shows that I was going to do something. I needed just some uh, expert advice. He's terrific. And plus plenty of other surprises. But our next episode is with a good friend of ours. Who is it? It's David Parr. Oh, David Parr. That's great. He's uh, he's a longtime friend of mine. Um, Eugene Berger actually uh, introduced us about, uh, well, in 1989. That's how long ago that was. I was doing a show in Milwaukee uh, at a theater there, and um, I was working with Eugene uh, in the years leading up to that on hauntings here in the Twin Cities. And um, he introduced me to one of his students who was living in Milwaukee. David Barr and David and I have been friends uh, ever since. He's going to talk to us about um, good tricks versus bad tricks. Yeah, in uh, fact, he's going to take uh, the trick you just heard in uh, Chapter 4, The Ambitious Dog, and he's going to tell us what's good about it and what's bad about it, which is really interesting because he, he's so smart about scripting and, and the, his big message, which is surprising, which is uh, do less. Magicians, do less. Do less, yeah. Fascinating. Hey, listen, if you like this show, and I don't know why you wouldn't, you should subscribe. Um, if you really like us, you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts that really helps other listeners find us. So um, if you have friends that you think might be interested, you can reach out to them directly or just leave us a review and it'll pop up for them. And there's a link in the show notes so that you can leave a review and we sure would appreciate it if you got a minute. So check out that link and check out all the other links we've got and all the other fun stuff on our YouTube page. Otherwise, uh, we'll see you next episode uh, with Chapter 5 and our good friend, David Parr. Episode 205, if you're scoring from home. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.